netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. I'm Jeff Huser. Well, today we have something different for you. Mike Seymour talks with Rhythm and Hughes about their work on the Coca-Cola Polar Bear commercials from the 90s. A bit of a look back. It's an intriguing conversation I think you're really going to enjoy about the advances we've seen and everything from rendering fur, pipeline, managing a team. There were several of these commercials starting around 1993, so we thought it would be an interesting approach to take a look back at how these commercials were done and, and kind of where we've come since then. We're going to start off talking with Todd Shiflett and then after that with Craig Talmy about how the business has changed over the years. Hey, I wanted to mention a year ago we launched FX Insider, which is a separate paid area over at FX Guide. Uh, basically, what we wanted to do was expand our coverage of the industry, and we wanted to add some additional people, and we wanted to be able to provide you with content that's available. We, we often had people ask us, you know, how can we help support FX Guide? As you know, we don't really do a lot of banner advertising. We don't really ask you for a lot. The site's been free to you, providing industry tips, news, FX Guide TV, audio podcasts like this uh, for years. And people often asked us, how can we help? How can we contribute? Uh, we've even had people send us uh, PayPal's for beers at trade shows and things like that. So we thought, well, what if we added some people? What if we grew the site just a little bit and uh, provided some exclusive content for people who, who do help us out? Um, sometimes going more in-depth on a story, adding an extra interview making a, a piece longer it's only $49 a year and it helps sustain the site so it's been a year and I really thank everyone who's uh, helped us and supported us in that way and uh, joined us and I hope you've enjoyed the the additional content and uh, looking forward to doing even more in the coming year all right so our interview like I said is with two people the first part of the interview is with Todd Shiflett a digital artist at the time he started at Rhythm and Hughes in 1991 and is currently a visual effects supervisor Todd was recently co-visual effects supervisor for Rhythm and Hughes on Little Fockers. He also recently supervised the studio's work for Cabin in the Woods and was co-visual effects supervisor on Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Squeakwell. Other films at R&H include Cirque du Freak, Charlotte's Web, Happy Feet, and Todd is currently working on Snow White and the Huntsman. He also led the development of the pipeline and software on the Oscar-winning Babe, making the project technically possible. So let's start the discussion by joining Mike Seymour, interviewing Todd Shiflett. We're going back now a few years to when uh, Rhythm and Hughes first worked on the uh, now not only famous but uh, sort of internationally recognised and fondly remembered commercials for Coke. What year was all this? Um, well, that's a good question. I think that was probably about 1992, 93, somewhere in there. Yeah, that sounds about right, because I think after the initial success, you, Rhythm and Hughes ended up going on to make more that included stuff for the 94 Olympics, um, though I believe yeah. those latter ones were a bit more anthropomorphized. Um, the bears actually <laughs> started skiing and doing more things uh, than they did in the original. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, yeah, they they... I guess with the popularity of them, they decided to, you know, just push it into any any realm that they could, and and they also would tend to, you know, I mean, the technology would change a little bit each time too. So, um, unfortunately, what that meant for us was that we couldn't just start, you know, uh, load everything from disk and run another shot through. It was pretty much rebuilding them every time. So let's, um, let's discuss what it was like back then, because just to set the stage, if I've got my uh, timeline correct, this is uh, before Babe, 
This is at a time when you guys are working on what uh, Silicon Graphics Indigo workstations. This is um, yeah. certainly before Hair was something that anyone would consider to be something easy to do. Yeah, that was definitely. Um, I mean, especially considering what we do now in terms of animals and their fur and everything else. That back then it was. In, it was certainly no easy task. I mean, the, the processing power wasn't anywhere remotely what we have today. And so it was a big challenge to just figure out, well, how do we make them look furry? Because we we can't possibly actually render fur. That that just wasn't available to us at the time. Um, so we were using just lots of little tricks at the time of, of kind of growing um, cards around the edges of the bear and... Um, with little tiny texture maps to indicate where the fur should be and trying to fill it with white. And, um, you know, if you look at just the evolution of those bears in terms of where they started you and, and then where they ended up, you can, you can pretty much have a good idea of just how, uh, how much technology improved <laughs> over that time period. Yeah, because the, well, let's start with the hair because I think it was one of the things that I remember when I first read about this, and I think I read about it in Cinefix first because it was that famous back then that uh, it was featured in Cinefix. Um, I, the thing that just struck me, obviously fur was just like way outside our our uh, sort of scope of anyone to be able to do, and you guys seem to have cracked it. And we were all trying to work it out, and then uh, it was sort of, when you got some stills, we could actually kind of study it. It worked out that you'd effectively done fur around the outside silhouette, effectively, of the bears, uh, and that the straight-on fur, the fur, you know, on a stomach, for example, uh, was really a texture map. And, and that was... I remember just thinking that it was just genius. I remember just sitting there going, oh, my God, that is so clever, because, of course, we tended to read the hair when it was backlit. Um, we wanted to see the fur around the edges. But, you know, the days of standard definition, I mean, you was... It was a really convincing solution, but it what only required you to presumably render about, or rather produce about a, a fifth or less of the amount of fur that you'd otherwise have to do. Well, yeah, I mean that's true, but it certainly it, it involved its own challenges because then as the bear's silhouette would change, <laughs> you know, we needed to find ways to reveal the new fur that was kind of coming in along the edges. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's it's kind to think that it was a a genius solution, but you know, more reality is that it 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 was a matter of necessity um, more than anything else. I mean, we, we could only render so much at one time, and um, we needed to pare down the geometry as much as we possibly could, and that was certainly one way to do it. Um, it, it also helps that, you know, the, there was a stylistic look to them that worked quite well, and, and it, served a, it served that purpose. Um, what was your actual title on the Bears project when, when this went through? Um, well, it's, I, I, I don't know what my actual... I mean, I, I came... <laughs> it was my first job, I think, at Rhythm Hughes. I was, I was freshly hired. So I was um, pretty much on that particular job just thrown at... They would just throw any little problems at me that would, would tend to come up. Um, so... I was, I think I was just hired as, a, as an effects TD, which uh, is, 
you know, back back then we didn't really break it down into categories very much. Yeah, especially uh, I guess in commercials where it was more like a team yeah. just solving it, right? Because it wasn't the pipeline. Yeah, pretty much. It was it was just a bunch of us trying to bang our heads together to figure out. Well, okay, here's a problem. You take this section of it, and I'll take that section, and we'll we'll try and figure it out. And since I was brand new to the company, it was just whatever would fall through the cracks. They would kind of throw my way, and I'd have to try and figure out how to do it. Um, and you know. Some of the other, I mean, sadly, there was also one of the most, um, in fact, I don't know that the company even knows that this happened, but I, at the time I was working a night shift. We had a, um, a day shift and a night shift, and um, it, just because we didn't, we had more people than computers. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> you know, and I was new and still figuring out my the ins and outs of how our whole system worked, and I remember one night in a, I had ac- just, you know, I accidentally typed the command to remove something, and I accidentally removed the entire project. From my <laughs> so it just wiped out the entire one fell swoop, wiped out the entire Polar Bear's job, and I, the panic that set in is I, I <laughs> was pretty huge. Um, luckily, there was uh, there were people there that were then able to show me how to restore from backup <laughs> so we you know didn't lose everything it was just only the last few you know what it since the last backup or whatever but you know back then it was from you were backing up to tape and it was a whole it was a whole ordeal just to oh yeah the, the information again still i guess um, uh did, did doing certainly, an, uh, get my heart a beating. recursive rm star dot star probably wasn't a good idea huh yeah no well you learned that <laughs> at some point <laughs> <laughs> Um, this this was in an age where you guys still produced an actual sort of maquette or a model. I believe that there was an actual bear made, mm-hmm. and that's what the yeah, clients kind of signed off on. Uh, yeah, I mean that's, that's certainly the starting point. Um, once once they you know they'll, they'll look at that clay model and everyone will sign off on that, and then it gets to the next step where once it's then brought into the computer and. Um, you know, we, we, we process it. They certainly get another opportunity to say, okay, well, now that we've seen it like this, we maybe want to make some other changes. But. Now, you were using TDI, if I remember correctly, and this was about the time that TDI went to the forefront after, a, I think they did a French pencil commercial that showed freeform deformations, and it was like revolutionary that you could get really good bends, and TDI was the go-to product for kind of character animation, but you still would have had a lot of problems with, with bending and creasing on the bear, I presume. Yeah, there was there was quite a bit of problems. I mean, well, first of all, we weren't using TDI. I mean, there oh, is went? a bit of history. No, I mean, there is a bit of history between Rhythm and Hughes and TDI, um, but all of the Rhythm and Hughes software we were using was um, written in house. Oh, okay. Um, so it was all proprietary uh, set of software. Um, it was very similar to TDI. There right. uh, and and. Because I remember fact, for a long then, time that that, TD, uh, that uh, Rhythm and Hughes had its own compositing uh, software and stuff, and and it had a, a long history of developing really good in-house tools. But I, I must admit, I did think it was a TDI package. But that's that's really interesting. So that was all all Rhythm and Hughes software. Yes. Huh. And then there were special tools written. You know, at the time, our choreography program didn't really deal with bending so much, right? So we had to. Uh, there's a whole separate program that would we would go in and uh, essentially it was re-rigging the characters from shot to shot and, and going in and trying to massage how their how the creases would work and um, it, depending on what the actual action was. 
Um, we didn't have anything at the time that was so sophisticated that would, you know, you would we would rig the characters and then drop it into a shot and then, oh, okay, well, then this is how they move and then out comes the end product. Um, we we kind of had to go at it a little bit backwards where we would we would animate it, uh, but then we would have to go in at the end to um, massage the rig per 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 scene. And back then, even getting reference for the animators must have been more... I mean, these days you don't even think twice. You just do a Google search on Northern Lights or Polar Bears and get about you know, <laughs> yeah. 100 videos. But, I mean, I can remember thinking that just getting footage of the Northern Lights to, to actually sort of... And, you know, and I was sort of wondering, like, could I see Northern Lights and did they actually look like that? Because I hadn't seen them, uh, being an Australian. Um, but presumably you can get <laughs> yeah, some yeah. reference. Uh, that's 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 actually a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. I don't know how we produced anything before the internet. <laughs> um, yeah, there was. Um, I don't know where the reference came from. I mean, we certainly had um, had had some of it. So there was a, a, there were certainly stock footage agencies that you could go through and and browse their their catalog catalogs. It wasn't nearly as as easy as it is today. Um, um, I think you. Well, I think the Cinefax article flagged that you actually had a bearskin rug that was used for the reference. I don't know if that's accurate or not. For the um, it was certainly used for. Uh, well, one we I think originally the like the bearskin rug was actually scanned in in order to help provide that kind of texture that you see uh, within the silhouette of the bear, um, and then the the rug then just provided us with something. That we could refer back to when we wanted to try and figure out, okay, well, how do how do we make this fur stand up on the edges of the of the skin, and what you know, what should it look like, and that, you know, not that we were trying to meet that target exactly, but, um, but you know, you need you need something to look at to try and. Yeah, it was um, it was actually like a period when I mean, for example, it's obviously easy to focus on the faces of the bears and sort of ponder how you got the character animation so good on the faces because it was obviously early days on on those kind of character rigs. But that would have extended out to so many things, right? I can't imagine that doing the snow was particularly easy back then, especially in some of the latter ones where they, you know, like uh, kicked it up or used it as a, you know, they were sliding down on, on one of the other bears and stuff. Like a lot of the stuff we take for granted now in terms of the particles and the snow shaders and, and all that kind of stuff all would have been i mean this, I, I imagine this job was sort of filled with corners of difficulty yeah i mean the, in, in fact the the particles um i guess it's a good point because at the time we didn't you know, there wasn't a houdini package or something like that that we would be <laughs> using we had written our own uh in-house software i think it was called propane at the time which was um written by harold zatz and yeah it was it was evolving all the time you know the um and it, it didn't have nearly the robustness that we, we certainly have today um and even you know, with the snow there was not only just what is getting kicked up but okay well how do we make sure that we get their footprints put in and where the how do they slide and yeah i remember there a number of different techniques used just for snow compression and how do we make it look like the snow is actually getting pressed down as they move over it and also that sort of sparkliness uh from the ice crystals um and what's what were you rendering in do you remember what was that presumably it was again in-house uh, was it? well the rendering package that we used then and actually still use today is called ren w-r-e-n which is written here at rhythm and use um it's it, it's evolved quite a bit since that <laughs> earlier days, um, 
but the between the compositing package and the renderer, um, the the sparkliness came from a series of of tricks of just you know putting texture maps on and running noise through essentially another noise field. Um, so we'd have like a static pattern that was textured onto the snow, and as the camera would change, we would get other um, other textures to cross over. Uh, that noise and essentially pulling contrast out, we were able to make some of them sparkle. So, in fact, animating texture maps and putting them on different geometry was also, I think, how you did the northern lights, wasn't it? The uh, the ribbons, as it were, of light in the in the sky. Yes, in fact, I think uh, Jacques Samson was the was the TD behind that. Uh, but yeah, that is that is how they were doing that. And one of the one of the more interesting ones, I guess, was that because we didn't we didn't have fluid simulation back then. That uh, fluid back then was even more difficult than fur. So when you know just doing the Coke bottle and as the Coke bottle would switch back and forth, um, coming up with a nice little solution that would allow for the it, to look like there was actually Coke in that bottle. Um, it was. It turned out to be a really simple solution of um, just having a, a card in there with a, co- a texture map of what looked like Coke and bubbles on it, um, and one at the top to be foam, and then it would just uh, we would just distort it based on the angle that was being uh, that that bottle was tilted at, and it worked surprisingly well. <laughs> And and that would extend down to refraction through the glass because, of course, you know, someone might reasonably today just happily ray trace away refraction through the glass and everything else. But you must have had a bunch of tricks to deal with the hero shot. And, and let's face it, the Coke guys presumably cared what the bottle looked like. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that, again, the stylistic feeling of it really allowed for um, some some room to play there but um you know the the refraction it wasn't a ray trace solution i believe that it was a the compositing trick where we would simply um based on a a grayscale map that from that bottle we would pull in a different part of the background so there's a couple of things about this ad that were remarkable at the time and and i had forgotten this until i started doing some research on it one of them was um and I'm going to sort of move away from some of the technical stuff now. This this was an ad that uh, was sort of brought to life by CAA, which mm-hmm. in of itself was an interesting concept because um, it was as if uh, the talent agency had gone around an advertising agency and suddenly produced these killer spots. And they were killer spots. I mean, they were literally ended up with like a line of kids' toys and Frisbees and just about oh, everything yeah. else that had bears on them. I mean, were you aware... I mean, just... Did it feel like this was at any time a different sort of ad in terms of director client agency stuff, or was it that sort of opaque to you as a as a person at well, years? I mean, at the time for me, I was so new to this industry that I just this is just well, I guess this is how things are done. You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize that this might be um, a special uh, process. I certainly did hear a lot about um, you know the agency being involved and that that, that this was. That, you know, it was told that it was unusual, but I didn't really have an experience of it for myself. Um, I think the first part, time that it really dawned on me that I thought it was kind of neat and special was when it um, when I saw it show up in uh, Natural Born Killers. <laughs> um, I thought, oh, well, that's that's cool. It's, it's now pop culture, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, I was Absolutely. Um, prior to coming to uh, to Rhythm and Hughes, weren't you at Greenberg and Associates? I was, yeah. So now, 
Now, I think this is really important also because it's kind of, when we talked about technology changing, but them, Greenberg back then was basically like a, more of a production company effects house that has since obviously morphed into a, almost a traditional advertising agency. But presumably when you were there, it was much different than the thing that we now know. Well, they had a lar- when I was there, they had a large optical division um, as well as a stage for shooting which was often used for, you know, just film shoots for commercials or, or still shoots. Um, and they had an emerging uh, CG division that was uh, run by Joe Francis. And um, the, their renderer, which was called M Render, that was by, written by Bob Hoffman. And um, that's where I, that's where, you know, effectively I got got to cut my teeth on because their their solution um while it was uh you know I, I look back on it today and still find it to be one of the most elegant uh packages that i've used it was there was no user interface it was all entirely script based hmm. um and it was all written in a um so you're essentially writing shaders for the for each renderer for everything you would do and it was it was down to for every shot, you were writing, you were essentially writing code that was done in a post-fix math. And you know, I just remember thinking all well, the time, I didn't know any better, right? So it was just here. This is what you learn. Um, and then later on, as as technology began to emerge, there was a big, there was a, a, even a rift between the people that had been in the industry for a while who were used to a script-based solution versus those that were just coming in and were and wanted a user interface. And there was a, a number of people that. We're arguing that, well, the user interface is so much faster, you get a lot more feedback. But there's a downside where, because it was faster, you would tend to just hit a different button. You would try something different, um, as opposed to taking the time to think about it. When you know everything was script-based, you pretty much had to imagine how it was going to look. And you know you didn't have the that uh, that luxury of being able to just kind of turn a knob and, and see, oh, that was the wrong one. So there was a, it's, and I don't know what you know would actually be in the end the the best solution. Um, certainly, the user interface has won out, <laughs> but but I, I do uh, I do often long for the the old days of the scripts. They were they transitioned to a kind of a digital studio from because I obviously found it in seventy seven, but they were doing feature film work. I mean, tons of stuff from I don't know Silence of the Lambs and Untouchables and stuff. But they also were doing a lot of commercials. Uh, were you Ed in the com- yeah? Were you at commercials before you moved over to rhythm, or in features before you moved to rhythm? Because obviously these days you're a feature film VFX. So. Uh, yeah, the well, and back at Greenberg they well they had a CG division that tended to do a lot more commercials. Um, I don't I don't remember any feature work done through the CG division while I was there. There there could have been. I don't believe I worked on any. Um, but it wouldn't have been divided up into something separate, I think, back then, because the CG division was so small. Yeah, and I they guess did also, have, they did have a features area that did a lot of opticals, and they did a lot of um, yeah. titles and things like that for films. Um, and that certainly was a different division. Yeah, because, of course, uh, digital in that respect came to commercials much sooner than it came to features. Yeah. Which brings me to jump the clock forward now. Of course, Rhythm and Hughes, um, maybe we could just talk briefly about about where you're at now and, and some of the work that you're doing um, because obviously nowadays you are uh, primarily a 
VFX supervisor at, uh, at feature film level. Can we just discuss a couple of the films that you worked on recently? Um, well, currently we're working on uh, Snow White and the Huntsman, um, which is still filming in, in London. And uh, back here in Los Angeles, we're working on uh, elements as, as they get scanned and are brought in. Um, more more recently, I think we have one that is coming out. It was shot quite a while ago, but it was an MGM project. And after MGM I went through its... Um, unfortunate phases there at the end mm. it, it got, got put on the shelf for a while but it's um, a Drew Goddard film um, w- that was made along with Joss Whedon which is called uh, The Cabin in the Woods which we're finally excited that it will be coming out soon I think in, in April or I don't know some sometime soon um, because that we worked on eh, it was probably about two years ago and you know and since then I've seen a couple projects that I've worked on come and go and actually come out in the theaters. <laughs> so um, it's going to be nice to actually finally see something uh, come of that film. Uh, but uh, they'll see, we're also working on Life of Pi. Um, we've done all of the Chipmunks movies. Um, we worked on the first Happy Feet movie. Uh, it's, um, it well, tends to stay pretty busy around here. Obviously you guys have a vast uh, history and experience and one of them, you know, really kind of uh, evergreen kind of of uh, the visual effects houses because the company's been going for so long and has been so successful. But yet, um, from an outsider's point of view, there is a lot of uh, like a, a perception that you're the go-to place for animals. Is that something that bugs you guys or is it like something that you feel like <laughs> you've earned well? Um, well, it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, I think that it uh, we're always happy to get work um, and there's a certain amount of pride that we take in, in, in people having accepted us as doing animals or, uh, really well. I think that where there, you, you'll see some of the frustration is down at the artist level, you'll have someone. Cause ever since, um, Babe won the Academy Award, uh, which was a while ago, um, it is, it is true that in addition to any other work you've done, you've also managed to have a very successful tradition of doing really good character animation work and, and, uh, and animal work. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it, right after Babe um, came out, I remember suddenly we got all kinds of, whether it was commercials or films, for more talking animals. Um, and that became a, a good source of bread and butter. Which is, you know, it's good to have, and it's nice to have a job, right? Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah sure. Um, I think that, yeah, from the artist's perspective, it, it definitely gets to the point where, okay, you've done this a number of times. Now we want to try something different, and you know, these these artists are great at at all kinds of things. So it, you want to be able to show them that you want to you want to be able to throw more work at them than just one thing all the time. Um, and you know, the, for that perception of uh, you know, doing just one sort of thing is probably unfair for any of the studios. I mean, not just Rhythm and Hughes. I think that most studios out there, you, when you've got a talented group of artists that can produce something, they can probably produce something else just as <laughs> just as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it is though obviously uh, to the company's credit that as other companies have come and gone. Um, you guys have remained really, uh, from an outsider's point of view, incredibly stable and 
and vibrant in the sense that, uh, as we touched on earlier, you've been you know, a lot of in-house software development, um, a lot of uh, work, and also the company has expanded a lot. You still, though, do commercials, right? There's still a commercials unit at, um, at Rhythm and Hughes, as I understand. Yeah, there is, um, and and they they still you know they still tend to produce a lot of commercials. Um, yeah, we're I mean we're very proud of the work we've we've done here, and um, it's the industry is very tough, uh, you know, in in general. I think that in, for any of the studios, it's not it's not really a profit making industry. <laughs> so uh, I think anyone who's who's able to stay in business is is doing something right. Um, although I think that of all those people, it's everyone's still scratching their heads a little bit <laughs> because it's 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 definitely not easy i mean there's there's um uh, it's a lot of competition and not and i i think it, unfortunately it, it it feels like from you know from a client's perspective it feels like a lot of this work costs a lot of money and it and it seems like well how could you not be making money hand over fist with that sort of a, a cost and and as it turns out, to produce some of this stuff, it actually it's it's expensive work. You know, it doesn't um, there's not a not a big profit margin in it. I mean, I've been here for quite a long time now, and I think you know the major reason I've stayed here is I don't you know the the owners of this company I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and I am amazed um, at at how well they've been able to keep this company going and and how much they care about the people that actually work here um you know i think that there have been studios that have come and gone that a you know whether they've come at it for a different reason um or 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 what but they uh, the feeling of actually working at the studio isn't isn't quite as nice i mean this i even though we're a big company now i still have quite a bit of a sort of a mom and pop feeling about the the studio uh, because of, of just the level of care that I think the, the owners have for all of the employees. When you were doing Coke Bears, it was a really small team, as we discussed, almost to the point didn't have uh, job titles as sort of specific to that project. Um, obviously, these days, one of the things that Rhythm and Hughes is really well known for or is, is successfully... Um, given acknowledgement for is running over multiple locations to India, Kuala Lumpur, Vancouver. Um, mm-hmm. Is it now the case that, you know, we talked about the technology changing in terms of how uh, renderers change or, or hair changes or fluid seams, but is it also that one of the big technologies that's changed between back then and today is the technology of managing a team? Because it seems to me that that's one of the big things that um, you've managed to crack everything from IT being able to update versions around the world to just managing because it's not like you know you just send over to India the stuff you guys don't want to do they have a really active role in what what happens is that is there a a sense that for you personally that that's an area that sort of really evolved yeah that's that's been a very big part of the um, evolution of, of rhythm use I think that you know and we've had our, our bumps in the road as well I mean I think that just learning not only how to deal with the technology of getting information back and forth. I mean, there's there's cultural divide, and um, you know, how do we work with with people that have a completely different sense of whether it's humor or whether you know? I mean, because we'll sit through dailies here, and we, people say all kinds of things, and you we understand the jokes and what you know what parts a joke and what parts not a joke. <laughs> whereas, whereas when you're suddenly talking to a group of people that 
aren't necessarily speaking your language or at least not speaking your dialect and and uh it it can become pretty challenging um but we've done a, a lot of trying to get to know the groups that are over there and you know that that's been a huge help in knowing just how uh, just how talented uh these people can be i mean um now we've we've just opened a new one in Vancouver as well but um but in the uh mumbai and and um Hydebat offices are kind of the earliest ones, and you know the the people that have grown up with the studio over there. We've got people that have been with with us now for ten years or more um, with those offices, and uh, it you know it started out small, and it started out with people learning some of the more simple tools over there. Um, but they've definitely grown into every aspect of what we do. Um, so it's you know they're they're a full part of the production. Yeah, yeah, it is uh, extraordinary to think that it was 2001 that uh, Mumbai was opened and uh, that, you know, you're a decade on in, in doing that. Um, so tell me, in terms of uh, technologies and stuff today, is there anything that, you know, you could just up in finishing, looking back on the Coke spot, is there anything that just resonates for you that, oh, my God, if only we had back then what we have today, everything would have been, you know, <laughs> like just is there one thing that sort of maybe you know, you just ended up staying till sort of four in the morning over that you just think, man, if I could just go back in time, the one thing I'd have loved to have taken with me was. Um, well, I think sadly the one, the, what I've come to realize throughout all of this is it doesn't matter what we would have had. It would have pushed it, something would have pushed it, and we would have ended up staying till four in the morning no matter what <laughs> ended up happening. Um, no matter, you know, if, even if we had all the technology and the processor speed that we have now and we could have rendered fur uh, the way we could if we can't, if we could back then have rendered fur the way we could now, um, it, something else about the project would, you know, have have made it just as um, challenging to do, um, because you know we're doing that sort of work now, and it, although you know it hasn't it hasn't necessarily gotten easier, you know there are certainly things that. Um, we can render larger when we've got nicer looking pictures and things like that, but everyone that comes into work is still working a good long day and it's very challenging work. So uh, just because the technology has gotten better, that doesn't mean that we have, you know, aren't continuing to push it. So I think that um, had we any of our tools uh, back then that we have today, uh, we'd we'd still be in the scratching our head, scratching our heads realm of, well, what else can we do? <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us because I do think that we've mythologized a little bit the growth of digital effects to be a feature film-led uh, move. And, and I feel that's really doing a disservice to people that pioneered in commercials because certainly from my experience, commercials was where it was at before it was in features, uh, apart from anything else because the render <laughs> was smaller because the frames were smaller. Um, yeah, I think that probably had a lot to do with it. But also just I think there were shorter run projects and there was more mm -hmm. room for kind of a stylized uh, view. And uh, we're certainly really uh, happy to throw the spotlight on some of these incredible advances because it was. It was like I, I remember seeing this uh, in Australia. It wasn't even airing, I don't think. And we watched it on, on a shots reel or something. I don't know how we got a copy. But it was, um, mm -hmm. it was inspirational. And it was just that idea of, oh, my God, like there falls another kind of uh, – impossible challenge in a, a, our 
walk towards realism. I'll say walk because I don't think it was a run. <laughs> As we sort of said, well, there's, yeah, right. the, there's the first taste of fur and doing furry animals. And oh my God, you know, just if a client had said about that six months ago, we'd have said no one's doing that and it's impossible. So I know it's a, a very belated uh, thank you and congratulations, but thanks and uh, and uh, we did appreciate oh, well, thanks, the impression. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm glad you were able to still get some pleasure out of that. And it's, it's, yeah, it's nice to know that there are people still looking back on it and thinking that it was part of the historical document of computer graphics. I yeah, think a, and I think even, nice and even more so than that, it's so wonderful to know that, uh, you know, Rhythm and Hughes is still going strong and that people that were involved in it are still there, and that just says so much about the company, but also it's just great to know that that work has been built on and, and continues to uh, obviously give a lot of people um, jobs and, uh, and, of course, creative challenges. So thanks for talking to us. We appreciate it. No worries. Thank you very much. All right, now let's switch to speaking with Craig Talmy. Craig started in traditional special effects with films such as Beetlejuice and stop-motion projects like Bud Bowl 3. This background in film, lighting, and timing provided a great background as he switched over to digital work. On Species, he was involved with one of the first motion capture productions. Craig serves now as director of animation. His credits include Big Miracle, Red Riding Hood, Marmaduke, Night at the Museum 2, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, Charlotte's Web, Chronicles of Riddick, Night at the Museum, The Cat in the Hat, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and Dr. Doolittle 2. So here we go, on to part two of our interview with Mike Seymour speaking with Craig Talmy. Um, you know, for me, commercials have always been the uh, arena where people are willing to take a little bit more chances. In features today, you know, you need um, a, lot, a lot of features anyway. That they are looking for visuals to bring in ticket sales you know the most amazing new matrix styled movie visually it has to be stunning visually it has to hold the interest in, uh, of the audience and bring them back but in the olden days of commercials movies were for the most part pretty straightforward it was more about storytelling less about visuals because no one could really afford to have a huge feature film be filled with you know special visual effects but commercials could in fact afford 30 seconds, as you say, of, you know, a 720 by 46 render that was something that was going to grab the audience and sell a product. So I, I agree. I think a lot of commercials kind of drove some of the visionary or some of the visual um, challenges that you now see in features more, more commonly. Why do you think that commercial just resonated so strongly? Because if I was just looking at it from an advertising point of view, you could hardly say that it's uh, it's a it's a given on a piece of paper because you know it's not like uh, somebody has some enormous benefit from using the product or that that enormous benefit is highlighted or that it's price structured or that it's uh, competitively structured against its competition. It and yet it was enormously successful. I actually did not work on the first polar bear spot, but I did work on. Um, I, I definitely. Worked on the last two that yeah they you ever worked did. on the campaign yeah I'm sorry I should phrase that differently yeah I I was the director designer art director you know all that kind of stuff on those um, and in working with the the clients I can tell you for a fact that the reason that the Coke Polar Bears did so well from the client's point of view from the ad agency as well as Coca Cola's marketing division. They, and I totally agree with them, they were committed to continuing the polar bears, and they knew that their success with the polar bears stemmed from, um, we'll, talk, we'll talk story first, from a human 
recognizable human family dynamic. You could tell who the dad was. You could tell who the children were. You knew who mom was. They had personalities, character, and intelligence that was relatable by humans to see human emotion and human character um, and family dynamics and uh, individual personalities in each of the spots. So that was a huge plus for them on a sales point of view for their storytelling and their audience connection, their audience uh, recognition and appreciation. In the meantime, they were also seeing for the first time on, on um, commercials some fairly sophisticated computer graphics at the time. You know, there wasn't a lot else going on like that. There was a pen tell pen commercial, you know, a few years before that where literally it was just a pen that flew through space. It was not much more than that. Um, so, com- so computers were not used generally for content. Um, and the Coke polar bears, as rudimentary as they may have been, they still encapsulated performance. And that was something that was brand new to the CG commercial world. It wasn't just some eye candy to look at. It wasn't a fancy rendering of a tin can or robots. It was personality. And, and that was a big deal for them at the time. So I guess what, what you're saying is that the the craft itself helped break through the clutter because people found it visually engaging because they wasn't something they'd seen before and it, and it was, you know, obviously going to therefore catch their eye. And then they kind of hung around, as it were, for, ironically, I guess, the family values and the feel-good sort of uh, warm smile to your face kind of feeling that you got from the spots? Uh, I would say so. I, I would guess... Coca-Cola, I don't know this for a fact, but I would suspect that it would not have mattered to them whether the Coke polar bears were computer-generated or if they were cell-animated or if they were puppeteered or, in fact, if they were just video of polar bears, um, you know, film footage. The trick came to abandon film because you couldn't get personality and control of the performance. Then I think they abandoned uh, cell animation and puppeteering and all that sort of thing because it was going to look as commonplace as everything else back in the day. Stop motion had sort of seen its its really huge heyday before the Coke polar bears came out. Um, in the marketing and advertising world, stop motion was you know was king for what fifteen or twenty years, and then it sort of became passe. So the next thing was cell animation, and everybody had seen enough of that. So definitely the vehicle of computer generated imagery was. Uh, a delivery system that was going to be uncommon to the television viewer, and that was going to hold some interest somehow, no matter why. Even if you just, you know, ha- had some less engaging characters, it was still going to be interesting to watch. But honestly, the engaging characters is what makes any of this stuff successful, and certainly it did with the polar bears. And in terms of like what we were discussing about this. Uh this sort of perhaps slightly biased view we have uh, looking back on the evolution of the craft as being feature-led. This, this commercial, this, this series of commercials, these were out before, for example, Babe, which was, of course, an Academy Award-winning uh, Award um, visual effects in live action. But this really existed in a time that we really hadn't seen a lot of animal personality stuff. This, uh, this really preceded all of that. Yeah, the only, um, the only thing that existed commonly, where people were familiar with it um, on a very casual basis, meaning they saw it regularly, were cartoons. 
um, that's where they could see personality. That's where they could see performance. That's where they could get a joke. That's where they were engaged one way or the other, um, whether it was a cartoon or, um, you know, for humor or whether you're a child, whatever it was, you had cell drawn animation. And so I think the, the notion that this was the first time they saw a personality being conveyed through animation was would not be probably accurate, but because everybody had been used to seeing it in cartoons and Tony the Tiger was doing you know serial commercials and every other you know product of the day, you had an acceptance instantly that this was a believable character because we already believed that Fred Flintstone existed and. Um, we believed already Tony and the Tiger, and we already believed in uh, the Pink Panther, you know, all the, all the different animated specials of the time and, and, and uh, commercials. So this was an easy thing to digest that they were alive and they had personality and that we could relate to them. But again, the computer-generated imagery brought a certain level of realism. Now, obviously, they don't look like real bears. They were never designed to look like real bears. The design process even in the very final two of them many many years after they started doing all these still went through a huge amount of scrutiny to make sure that they didn't look like actual bears but they looked like a stylized bear that coca-cola had in mind but what they did have for the first time was more i want to i don't want to say realistic but almost authentic looking lighting they had authentic looking sets the the resolution the fidelity uh, the realism of completely fake environments and completely fake characters is what made the computer, you know, pay for itself for those spots. That's what people, I think, you know, saw for the first time snow and they saw kind of fur and they saw sparkle in the, in the eyes of the polar bears and they thought those look real almost. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's kind of what, what drove them to their success to be years and years and years of, you know, ongoing campaign. And then Coke did a very smart thing. They pulled back on the campaign. Uh, the original intention was to crank those things out like crazy, but it turned out that Rhythm and Hughes could not push them through as fast as Coke had originally expected them to. And I don't think that really drove the, the concept or the idea of it, but Coke made a, a good, smart decision, whether it was financially driven or not, to hold back the Coke polar bears to special events. Christmas time, um, I think they did Christmas time, they did New Year's, and they did giant sporting events like the Super Bowl. I think that was the only reason, you know, the only, only times you saw those spots. So you came to the campaign. What were the ones that you kind of worked on that you remember as being uh, good for you? Well, um, when I came, when when I, I think they were working on one of them called. I'm not really sure. It's where the little baby bear swims in the water underwater. That was pretty remarkable technologically, and it looked beautiful. The next one was called Fireworks, I believe, and that's where a family is watching a bunch of fireworks being shot off in the polar ice cap, and that one was the last of the old guard, and then I was brought in. I had already worked at Rhythm and Use for some time at that point, but I, I took over the campaign at that point and did one called Carousel and one called Sledding. Those are the two spots that I worked on. We did them concurrently. They were to be released um, around the Christmas holidays, 
and I think they ran them once or twice for Christmas, and then they sat on them for a little bit, and then they came out in the Super Bowl again. Yeah, and, uh, I have to say sledding, I think, is a terrific one, not least of which because there's a, a subtlety at the end of sledding uh, that is just enough to indicate the junior bear saying, hey, let's go again, but not right. so much that it was, uh, you know, uh, an overplayed kind of, it didn't need to be overplayed. Um, I think I think that was a, uh, certainly one of my favorites. I, I really liked that one. Yeah, me too, actually. And, and in fact, what you've pointed out is something that we had to talk the agency into somewhat. They had been used to doing what we used to call bite and smile commercials. You know, show the hamburger, bite the hamburger, and smile. Make it really obvious that this is a good thing to eat. And the Coke Polar Bears and... Uh, the Geico Gecko um, were the first spots that I was directing anyway where we could talk the agency into letting us back off a little bit from the really obvious, iconic imagery of a happy bear or a sad bear or whatever it might be. And we tried to do much more subtle stuff. If you were to look at sledding, I think you're right. There's some subtlety in the performances there, and we're trying to intimate uh, you know, exactly as you described, the kid wanting to could do it again and again and again. The the carousel, which is the one where the it's the spot where the Coke bottle is on a little ice float, and Dad is scooping, yeah. kind of like a kid in a pool, is scooping the water, trying to get the like little iceberg water. To, yeah, yeah, and then he he grabs the the Coke and drinks it. You know, there's so many um, there's so many technological. Uh, <laughs> I want to say, not rough, but uh, early technology in there. There are things you look at now and you think you would never do it again, but the the fact that the performances, once again, were a little on the softer side, not quite a, such a hard sell, a little bit more of emotion and intelligence and their thought process trying to be broadcast through our animation and lighting, and a little bit less of very clear, iconic facial expressions to drive our story. So, yeah, they were really fun. I, I loved doing them. They were loads and loads of fun. Tell me, when you came to do Carousel, did you actually get to do a fluid sim, or was that just a uh, sort of displacement mapping? I mean, how did you actually get the water done? Where was the technology at? There, you're, you know, there's a bunch. There was a, there's no fluid sim whatsoever. It was, the best of my recollection anyway, it was simply a noise map doing displacement on top of the water surface, which was just a, a single plane with a water texture to it. We then put some layers of water textures below it, just again, multiple planes of color, ran a bunch of different transparencies and had them animate so that the water wasn't one consistent color all the time. But as the camera moved around, the color would shift in the water because we would change different opacity levels on the different layers of water that were you know, below each other, as well as cell animation. There are some cell-drawn splashes. When Pop, hmm. when Dad splashes the water, you know, his hand hits the water and yep. pulls the water towards him, those little splashes and ripples are all hand-drawn. When he lifts his hand up out of the water and there's a couple of drips, Hand drawn. Wow! It was the quickest way we could get out of it. I think the technology would have existed to do something more than that, but it wasn't going to yield any performance or any any imagery that was going to be much better than that. 
And, uh, you know, as I recall, we were sort of running out of time, and we tried a few things, and it wasn't working well enough. And the cell animated portions of that were going to be quite quite easy to do, simple to do, and they worked great. I mean, obviously, today, you're a senior animation supervisor. Maybe you could talk about some of the work that you've done more recently. But, uh, but I would like to compare uh, team sizes after that. So... The pro- <laughs> team sizes? Well, because because <laughs> I was going to ask you what your your actual title was on the original ones, but back in the uh, day, it was probably sure. less segmented and less sort of uh, compartmentalized. Yeah. I came to Rhythm and Hues about 15 or 16 years ago, something like that. And at the time, it was about 125 people, as I remember, and it all seemed to be just one big family. Everybody pitched in to do what anybody needed. It didn't really matter. There were teams assigned to projects, certainly. There were people who were lighters versus animators versus modelers or riggers. They certainly had their category and their job description, but there wasn't such a serious segregation between the jobs or the titles that if you needed help on your job, maybe a Coke polar bear job only had 10 people on staff and Babe maybe had, um, you know, 200. So um, if you needed help with something, you could, you could simply borrow and ask for help. It was quite simple. Again, it was a very family-oriented kind of a feeling there. Um, and before you came the, to Rhythm and Hughes, you actually had like a physical uh, sort of uh, career path, didn't you? I mean, before you got into the computer stuff? Yeah, I went from... Um, in the movie business, I went from doing sort of uh, audio animatronics and rigging, physical rigging, for a kind of legendary stop-motion guy. And he also did some puppets from time to time. And he and I got along quite well. He could sculpt and he could make anything stop-motion-wise come alive, but he couldn't build a rig or an armature to save his life. So I started with him building armatures and rigs to pull off whatever it is we had to do. And that worked quite well, you know, the, the partnership of his artistry and my physical physical uh, and building capabilities. So I would design all of the guts and he would design all the exteriors and um, stop motion commercials by the handful. But mostly what happened was we were called in to a place called Boss Films, Ah, yes. about, I think it was about 1989 or something like that. Boss um, had a, uh, been given the award to produce a commercial for Budweiser called, called Bud Bowl. And Bud Bowls were very popular. They were a football stadium, and beer bottles played football. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever seen any of those. No, I remember them well. And I didn't, I'm not even an American, and I remember them. <laughs> yeah, they were, pretty, they were a pretty big deal. And so we worked on Bud Bowl 3, and then Bud Bowl 3, I think it was the largest complement of characters they ever had. I think we had 10,000 bottles and cans. If you, if you think of just the sets, you know, the stadium and the stands and the people, all of that. But we had full, two full teams of Budweiser bottles down there, and, you know, this is before the days of, 
compositing and wire removal or rig removal via computers, this is still back in the day where you had to use a motion control system, you shot one frame at a time, and we did everything we could to hide all of the rigs that either supported a ball as it flew through the air or if a character had to jump up and twist and catch the ball and then jump back down, our job was to try and hide that as much as we could because it was difficult to do. That was all single-hand, you know, single-frame hand roto paint now, jobs. Now, this is down in Marina del Rey at Boston. This would have been in Marina del Rey. Yep. Yeah. And so we did that, and um, and we just kind of stayed there for the longest time. Sort of the highlights of um, of that era would have been Alien 3, which was literally a puppet whose head was maybe six inches long, his body was about six and a half inches long, the tail was maybe 28 inches long, and Alien 3 um, was another one of these jobs that was sort of tested. Would it be a puppet? Would it be um, stop-motion animation? We did all these different tests, and they selected to do the puppeting version. So again, I built the rig and the rigs that allowed the puppet to float around in space properly, and then we developed a a motion capture system whereby the motion control camera would run up and down the track or a person could push a camera up and down the track, but mostly it was motion captured so that the video would be pointed in whatever direction it needed to be pointed in for the live action on set shot in England. Then they brought it back to America and gave it to us. And now our camera would reproduce whatever motion the the motion control head captured on set. So our puppets had to be in exactly the right place at the right time. And it was a lot of sort of just working it all out. But that puppeting job actually came out pretty good. And people were impressed enough by it that we had a slew of movies that followed that, um, including Batman Returns and... Well, I don't know. Well, anyway, I'm sorry, but, but, but obviously in my in my world, boss films will always be the home of a diehard. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. It's hallowed ground. No, it totally is. I mean, boss, they did uh, God, um, Ghostbusters, and before it was boss films, it was another company, and they did a lot of the original Alien movie there, and Star Trek, and lots and lots and lots of stuff was there. You'd walk through the model shop, and the the models that you would see, you know, spaceships from the original Alien movie, uh, you know, whatever it was, or the you know the subsequent Alien movies with Sigourney Weaver in them, there was all kinds of fun stuff. And of course, the Crypt Keeper's House from HBO's Tales from the Crypt, I think it was called, and um, and there was the the mansion from. Or the top, maybe it was the top of the Empire State Building from Ghostbusters. So yeah, it was a really fun place to work because there was so much mechanical and physical history in front of you. Now with computers, you know, you get done and you print out a still if you want, but it's not the same as walking through a model shop. No, sadly we lost uh, Boss Films obviously at the end of the '90s. But I think the yeah. great thing about talking about these Coke spots is how Rhythm and Hughes has not only you know, continued on, but really expanded and grown enormously and globally. Um, and it's so great that that Rhythm and Hughes has done that, of course, because it's so great to have this continuing line from back. Because uh, uh, I think I think next year it's twenty five years, isn't it? Uh, Rhythm yeah. And Hughes? yeah. Not only that, but so many of the original people, the people who started there twenty five years ago, are still there. A lot of them. 
And so you're right, there's a tradition and there's a lineage that has continued through. It's, it's, it's great. It's I guess it's about the highest compliment you can pay to a, um, uh, to a studio is that because obviously we live in a competitive environment and it would be easy for you or anyone else to uh, move on to uh, other companies if, uh, if that was a, you know, obviously especially geographically uh, being in, uh, yeah. in Los Angeles, it's not a place that's... Uh, that's you know impossible to find another job. So it's it's a great uh, work. But the thing about Rhythm Hughes is it's expanded tremendously. And I cut you off before you get a chance to talk about your teams today, which are obviously are much bigger than the teams you had back then. That that is true. Um, just to finish your thought about Rhythm and Hughes and their um, their attractiveness to TDs um, and why they love them and all why they like to work there. Rhythm and Hughes treats people incredibly well. Every person who sits behind a computer, all the way down to everybody who cleans the landscaping and uh, does the maintenance around the building, they're all treated exactly the same, and they're all appreciated immensely. And they are they're let let know. It, it, they're, it's clear that people appreciate their work. It's not like you can sit down in the in the coal mine you know, banging away on a rock and nobody ever notices you're there. You are noticed. Somebody makes sure you're noticed. In the olden days, John Hughes would walk around the building, you know, six or seven o'clock and say hello to you and then tell you to go home and enjoy your family. You know, there was a personal touch and a personal integrity that every one of the originating members of the company as well as all the management people had. And they still do. And so there are lots of people as you say, who could have gone on to, you know, different companies, maybe better salaries, maybe better titles, but there really is a feeling of this is your family and this is your home and this is where you need to stay. And that's that's the magic of having kept so many good people for so many years, which has allowed, of course, the company to thrive and grow. And, you know, it's a very supportive environment where you continue to want to do your best and or work really hard on off hours to come up with a new water technology just because it'd be really neat to do and you love the place you work. So that's, that's part of Rhythm and Hughes' kind of, you know, DNA, uh, much more so than some of the other companies who are maybe producing movies and effects that are more engaging for the people to work on. For example, I can tell you that a lot of animators and some lighters left Rhythm and Hughes as soon as Star Wars showed up again, the, you know, the three subsequent CG Star Wars. They couldn't wait to get to ILM and work on the show, you know, work for the movie that got them out of high school and into college pursuing a career in computer-generated imagery. Star Wars is what made these guys all want to be in the, in the business. And so when, when uh, George Lucas started up the subsequent three Star Warses, they all ran. They just couldn't wait to get there fast enough. And within six months, they all came back going, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> and I don't think really the job was bad, and I'm sure the work environment was okay. It just wasn't their family. It wasn't who they wanted to spend their time with. And so, yes, Rhythm and Use has sort of a, a bad reputation amongst mostly animators. And when I say bad, I, I just mean that it's known for doing talking animals. And then once talking animals were done, then it started doing cute animals. You know, the Alvin and the Chipmunks and the Night in the Museums and uh, Babe and uh, Narnia. You know, sooner or later, there's a lot of animals. And uh, there are people who want to leave, mostly animators, 
who want to go kill things and they want to blow things up. And they end up in the games world or they end up in digital domain to do Transformers or whatever it is. I think so, that the that the campaign, the Coke campaign, has deservedly been given a terrific place in history and uh, it's so wonderful, as I said a couple of times now, how much uh, that has continued into Rhythm and Hughes as we know it today, the much larger international company that is today. So thank you. Yeah, it, it really has folded all the way through. You're right. Well, thanks to the guys from Rhythm and Hughes and, and to Rhythm and Hughes itself for, for taking on this uh, more interesting, uh, kind of an interesting approach to talking about the work, looking back at some of the history. Hope you guys enjoyed that. All right, well, that'll do it for this FX podcast. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, this is Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.